This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Sunlight Foundation, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, the Tom Hartman Program, Moyers and Company, and Lawrence Lessig. And a quick warning that today's episode contains trace elements of hope not usually found in this show and may want to be avoided by those who prefer the perpetually bone-crushing despair brought on by a progressive worldview. The 2012 election was a record breaker. Contributions topped $6 billion, making it the most expensive election in U.S. history. So, who helped fuel this flood of money? There are about 314 million people living in the U.S. Of that population, about 25 million people gave money to politicians. But when analyzing data about who gives this money, we noticed there is one distinct political donor class that rises above in power and wealth. We call them the 1% of the 1%. Let's look and see the extraordinary influence this small fraction of Americans has on politics as we know it. These top donors accounted for 28% of all disclosed money in federal elections last year. Yet the 1% of the 1% is so small it would not even fill half a football stadium. The 1% of the 1% gave $1.7 billion in 2012 to support candidates, campaign committees, political parties, and super PACs. Who knows how many of them gave to dark money groups? What does it take to be part of the 1% of the 1%? Give at least $12,950 and you're in the club. We expect that figure to rise in 2014. And while the 1% of the 1% is a very small group of Americans, their money supported every U.S. representative and senator elected to Congress last year. These mega-donors have effectively become the financial gatekeepers of who can and cannot run for public office. Now it is more important than ever to have real-time disclosure rules around campaign contributions. Washington politicians basically don't give a damn about you or me. They only answer to the billionaires and the giant corporations. And thanks to 40 years of Supreme Court decisions, American politics now is no longer about the will of the people. It's about, it's only about the money. And therefore, we no longer have a functioning democracy in America. We have a kleptocracy, a, an oligarchy. I mean, years of court-friendly Supreme Court, uh, corporate-friendly Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United, Buckley, 
First National Bank, they've rigged and corrupted American politics so badly that average hardworking Americans have basically no influence in D.C. Instead, our, quote, elected officials, end quote, are only answering to the wishes of, of the, you know, the, the, the rich people and special interest groups like the NRA, well-funded special interest groups. They published this study in a magazine called Perspectives on Politics. Uh, the authors were Martin Gillens of Princeton University and Benjamin Page of Northwestern University. And what they discovered was they were just looking at, you know, people, what people wanted versus what got passed into law. And what they found was that when the wealthy elite or powerful interest groups want policy passed or not passed, it gets passed or not passed. Washington listens. But when we the people, average working people, speak up, sound out about a particular policy or piece of legislation, like, hey, uh, for example, extending unemployment benefits, our politicians completely ignore us. You know, in Citizens United, John Paul Stevens wrote the dissent, as I recall, and he made a really important point. He said from the bench, and I quote, this is from the Citizens United dissent, he said, when citizens turn on their television and radios before an election and hear only corporate electioneering, they may lose faith in their capacity as citizens to influence public policy. A government captured by corporate interests, they may come to believe, will be neither responsive to their needs nor willing to give their views a fair hearing. The predictable result is cynicism and disenchantment, an increased perception that large spenders call the tune and a reduced willingness of voters to take part in democratic governance. End of quote from the dissent in Citizens United. John Paul Stevens added, he went on to say, unlimited corporate and fat cap money would also scare the hell out of the politicians themselves so they'd only do what the rich guys wanted and to hell with the average voter. He said, quote, to the extent that corporations are allowed to exert undue influence in electoral races, the speech of the eventual winners of those races may also be chilled. Politicians who fear that a certain corporation can make or break their reelection chances may be cowed into silence about that corporation, end of quote. Four years later, Four years and three months later, we discover that Justice John Paul Stevens was totally right. In this study that Gillens and Page did, they wrote, quote, ordinary citizens have little or no independent influence on policy at all. They went on to say that the wealthy elite have, quote, a quite substantial, highly significant independent impact on policy, more so than any other set of actors. And special interest groups, if they're well-funded, quote, they have a large, positive, highly significant impact on public policy. They looked at over 1,700 issues over a 20-year period, which is about how long it's been. I mean, it's been a little more than 20 years since Buckley and First National Bank, since we first got this idea that corporations should have free speech rights. It's insane. It's killing our democracy. Justice John Roberts, who's the Chief Justice, and who in his very short time on the court has ruled now on six 
campaign finance reform related questions. And all the court watchers who do this for a living have said that this is probably what's going to be his focus as chief justice. They all tend to pick, they're almost like first ladies. They all tend to pick their thing that they're going to go down in history for, you know, the Warren court, the Rehnquist court, the Roberts court. The Roberts court may be known as the court that did away with the whole campaign finance reform question. You have to admire the guy for his honesty, though. But his honesty, now that we can all see things for what they really are, has devastating consequences. That's what's breathtaking about the decision the other day. What Chief Justice Roberts said, which is something, by the way, that you could go back to the 1976 Buckley versus Vallejo decision and see, is that money and free speech are the same thing. Again, we heard that already, right? We also heard that corporations might as well be individuals when it comes to giving money. That was a recent decision, too. And truthfully, as we all know, corporations are no longer American corporations anymore. Most of them are global corporations, especially the big ones, which also means that we basically said that, you know, corporations are people, too. Well, they can be foreign people, too. Well, foreigners can give, too. I mean, the system's wide open to everybody. I've said many times that I thought Bill Clinton should have been impeached for, you know, his role in Chinese money taking in the early 19, mid-1990s. Um, and the only reason he wasn't is because the Republicans looked at him and thought, I'd much rather get him on something like Whitewater. We have nothing to do with Whitewater, but that Chinese money thing, well, that could be, that could be a boon to all of us if we could figure out how to tap into that. It was just too darn good of an idea to slam, you know, Bill Clinton for when you might want to do it yourself. The court basically in the last few years has opened up the door to that legally. Anybody has a right corporate or single individuals to give to the U.S. government. And the next thing that's going to fall big, folks, is when they just basically outright say, well, why can't members of China give money to the U.S. government? What's the difference? What Robert said that was so breathtaking, the part that I compare to wondering if your spouse is having an affair and having them tell you, is that Robert said that what you see when money goes into politics and it influences candidates is the system at work. This is democracy in action. You are not seeing a problem to be solved. You are seeing the way it was designed to operate. What you see as a problem is American democracy. And then he goes on to say something which I think is totally outside the realm of what he's allowed to say as a justice in a ruling. And he then says, it's not even right for you to try to fix it. We'll do some quotes in a minute so you can hear how they phrase it as opposed to how I phrase it for them. And then we can, we can address what they say because it changes the entire ball game. Okay. Goes from this idea that uh, we need to figure out a new way that's legal to do campaign finance reform to the justices have basically said that the very idea of campaign finance reform is wrong. Now, what did they say? Well, they, they decided to do what they've been doing a little bit at a time for many years now, narrow down what the very definition of corruption is, because that's what we tell you the U.S. government has been for a long time. It's, it's a corrupt government. It is a system that functions based on who pays it, not the overall need of the country. You ask why we don't solve more problems in this country, why so many of the decisions seem to be sort of almost random and nothing is holistic, nothing is considered in the grand scheme of things. That's because that's not how they're paid to, to legislate. 
someone gives money for a particular cause, then that cause is dealt with, but it may have nothing to do with a totally interlocked issue that you would like to see dealt with at the same time, unless that issue has money given to it. So in other words, we have an a la carte system of government here based on who's, you know, contributing for what, when what we need to solve the problems is a meal-based system. Does the steak go with the side dish? Does the drink complement the acidity in the spinach? I mean, that's what we need. And what we've got is, oh, somebody paid me to give you a steak uh, with a side of pizza and some Chinese food. I mean, it doesn't make any sense in the end. But that's the way it's supposed to function, according to the court. And then the court, as I said, said something that they shouldn't say, which is, you shouldn't even be trying to fix it. Let's get to the actual phraseology so that you can see what I'm talking about. There is a long-running tradition in the court that the free speech rights, which, you know, it's not new. Somebody says, the court recently said that money equals free speech. No, the court said that way back in the 70s and even earlier. But you don't have an unlimited right to free speech, and that's been, you know, for a very long time ruled. Um, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, for example. That's the famous example that's always given. There are limits, common sense limits, to free speech rights. What earlier courts acknowledged, and which is why you even have some of this campaign finance reform legislation on the books, is that one of those limits is corruption. The big, you know, elephant in the living room here is what the definition of corruption is. What the Roberts Court ruled the other day is that corruption is the very narrowest definition you can possibly fashion. Okay? Corruption is one person gives a briefcase to a legislator and says, you know that, uh, you know that issue on Capitol Hill, uh, House Resolution 5751? I want you to change your vote from no to yes, and here's a million dollars to do it. That is illegal, the court said. Anything else is the way democracy in this country is set up to run. So how does the court phrase this? Well, I had to actually, um, get this on my phone unless I wanted to print out the 94 page decision. I had to take a photo of a computer screen, <laughs> get a screenshot that way. Um, this is a quote from Ju Chief Justice John Roberts' writing of the majority of five to four opinion on this. And it's, it, this is the breathtaking part. As I said, who cares if another silly, weird campaign finance reform law that nibbles around the edges and doesn't really do a job is knocked down? It's what the court said the reason for knocking it down is and how they came forward and said, yes, we are having an affair, and that's that's the way marriage is supposed to work. Go back and look at the old days. John Roberts wrote, quote, in a series of cases over the past 40 years, we have spelled out, meaning the court, has spelled out how to draw the constitutional line between the permissible goal of avoiding corruption in the political process and the impermissible desire simply to limit political speech. We have said that the government regulation may not target the general gratitude a candidate may feel towards those who support him or his allies, or the political access such support may afford. Ingratiation and access are not corruption. They embody a central feature of democracy, that constituents support candidates who share their beliefs and interests, and candidates who are elected can be expected to be responsive to those concerns. End quote. There's so much wrong with that statement that I'd like to get into it, but then he goes on to say something else which deepens how wrong it all is when he says, quote, 
No matter how desirable it may seem, it is not an acceptable governmental objective to level the playing field or to level electoral opportunities or to equalize the financial resources of candidates, end quote. In other words, anything you do to fix the inequality in a situation where money is the main concern is wrong as a government effort in the first place. In other words, what he's saying is campaign finance reform is wrong. Unless campaign finance reform is merely intended to stop a guy with a big briefcase full of money giving it to a legislator. And that it's only natural that if you give something to a legislator, they're going to want to listen to your concerns. And in fact, that's how democracy is supposed to run. Now, the reason that this is different than what the Founding Fathers, for example, intended, is that, yes, Roberts has taken a tiny bit of the truth, which is that the people who are in government are supposed to respond to the people who put them there. But the assumption is that the people who put them there are the voters, not the big money givers. So when he says that, yes, Thomas Jefferson would say, yes, if you elect a candidate to office by voting for them and you elect them to office to end this war that's going on and then they end that war, they're responding to the will of the people who put them in office. But nowadays, the people that put them into office, at least from the viewpoint of the candidates, is more and more seen to be the people that contribute, not the people who vote. And as Lawrence Lessig, the Harvard law professor who has made it his lifetime goal now to deal with this issue, has pointed out, while you and I may have the ultimate chance to weigh in on whether or not we want this or that person for president, for example, because we're the voters, the people that are up on the stage, Tweedledee and Tweedledum from the two parties, that decision is made at an earlier level in the process, the part of the process where the moneyed people speak first. So how often do we always say that every presidential election devolves into a can campaign of the lesser of two evils? Well, the reason why is... You didn't pick that guy on the left, and you didn't pick that guy on the right. Those people were picked at the financial stage in the process. And this happens, folks, down to the mayoral level in cities. You can find, you know, comments in Lawrence Lessig in his book, which I believe has now been put free online, Republic Lost. Lessig is, listen, Lessig is a liberal. So understand that he's got that bias, but understand that, that he's written one of the best, most understandable tomes on this problem and explains it in a way that makes it clear, as I'm going to try to do in this program, that it doesn't matter whether you're Democratic or Republican. This is a systematic question of balance and that if you don't fix it, doesn't matter which side of the political fence you're on, we're all going to lose. Okay, if the system gets unbalanced the way it's heading, now that we know our spouse is having an affair and they've told us everyone's going to lose, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, doesn't matter, okay? And Lessig has a great way of um, demonstrating how the system has become corrupt without ever having to get to the level of, you know, one guy offers a briefcase to a candidate, you know, to, to pass a certain amount of legislation. He refers to the term dependence corruption as a way to distinguish it from what the court calls quid pro quo corruption, which is the I've got a bag of money and I'm giving it to you corruption. Here's what he writes about it in this book that I encourage you all to read. He does a great job of making this understandable and has enough shocking comments from legislators that show how 
truly, you know, beyond the pale this is and how the very first thing these people in the Democratic and Republican Party want in order to support you as a candidate down to the level of local mayor is how well you can raise money so that by the time the voters get a shot at deciding whether or not they want you or your opponent, the money has already decided whether you get to be on that stage and allow the voters to make that decision at all. Here's what Lessig writes about dependence corruption. He writes, quote, Imagine that a company, call it Bexon, let it be known that it intended to spend $1 million in any congressional district to defeat any representative who believed that the federal government should enact climate change legislation. This spending would be independent of any candidate's campaign, as the Supreme Court has defined it, because it occurs in the absence of prearrangement and coordination, it would not fall within the range of speech properly regulatable as campaign contributions. It is a, quote, independent expenditure, end quote. He continues, Quote, if a representative learned of that intent and decided to shape-shift and adjust his or her view about the need for climate change legislation, for example, by dropping a pledge to support a climate change legislation from her website or removing her sponsorship on a prominent bill, there'd be little doubt that the change was because of Bexon's expressed intent. But there'd also be little doubt that the change was not an instance of quid pro quo corruption. There is no agreement. There is no act to carry out an agreement. There's simply an expressed intent and an action in response to that intent that preserves the political position of a politically vulnerable representative. End quote. Here's the funny part, though. Lessig wrote that before the decision the other day, where Chief Justice Roberts explains that that thing that Lessig just called dependency corruption is the way the system is supposed to function. That's what's breathtaking, folks. And it opens the door to horrific outcomes down the road. And I'm not being, you know, a person playing in hyperbole with this. We have examples to look at. Let's start with the obvious problem you would like to hear someone ask Chief Justice Roberts about. If money for access and influence is simply the vehicle for, air quotes, responsive politics, the court has left unanswered the question of how those without lots of money are supposed to get a response from government. The problem with equating money with free speech has always been that some people have more money than others. So does that mean that some people have more free speech than others? And then I was discussing this with someone recently who said, well, listen, the Second Amendment protects your right to bear arms, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to have the same number of guns. Poor person might only be able to afford one gun. A rich person could afford, you know, 50 guns. Yes, but they can't buy a tank. So there is a limit there, right? And the limit is, is when the line is crossed to when it has the potential to do damage to society you know, above and beyond what the free speech right protects. In other words, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Can you be, you know, part of a very small number of people that controls which candidates you and I eventually get to vote on? By the way, do you know how many people are actually affected by this ruling from the court the other day? You know, we talk about this great free speech rights for Americans and protecting all that. Folks, there's less than 700 Americans that give anywhere near enough money to be affected by this at all. So when we talk about protecting everyone's free speech rights to give as much money as they want to candidates above and beyond all these limits, 700 people or less. 
Now, the extra downside that Roberts also added in the decision the other day when he said no matter how desirable it may seem, it is not an acceptable governmental objective to level the playing field or level electoral opportunities is he's saying not only is this the way it's always been, but the government would be wrong to try and change it. Now, here's the main problem I have with that is that's not his job. That, to me, right there opens the door up to saying, wait a minute, this guy is overreaching hugely. If he has a problem with that, he can knock down every attempt as they come. But it's not his place to tell Congress and the people to stop trying, right? The way the system works is the people are supposed to enunciate a certain will. I mean, this is all theoretical, obviously. Enunciate a certain will. The legislature, the people's house, is supposed to respond by crafting legislation. And then the court decides if the legislation to achieve the goal the people want is constitutional. It's not the court's job. It is, in fact, against what they're there for to instead tell the people and the people's house that it isn't an acceptable governmental objective. An acceptable governmental objective is whatever the hell we want. Now, how we get there might be unconstitutional, and that's what the court rules on. But it's not his job to tell us, you know, what an acceptable thing for us to want is. It's time you meet Lawrence Lessig, like you. He knows that capitalism is no blueprint for democracy, and he's demonstrating the power of his convictions with boots on the ground, snow boots. Lessig is a well-known constitutional scholar and activist. He not only talks the talk, he's walking the walk. Last month, through winter's ice, sleet, and snow, he led a two-week march of patriotic Americans from north to south down 185 miles of streets and roads in New Hampshire, traditionally the site of the nation's first presidential primary. The march was to raise awareness of the need for campaign finance reform, including HCR 10. That's a resolution in the state legislature to amend the U.S. Constitution and overthrow Citizens United. They're also asking all of the presidential candidates who will soon be haunting New Hampshire a big question. How are you going to end the system of corruption in Washington? This hike's just the beginning. More marches are planned in the state between now and 2016. This year's began symbolically in Dixville Notch, population 12, well known to fans of American politics as the first town in the United States to cast its presidential ballots. Constitutional scholar Lawrence Lessig. People have constantly said to me, this feels a little crazy to march across New Hampshire in the middle of January. I kind of feel, well, like, who is the crazy in this story? Right? We have a Congress where members spend 30 to 70% of their time raising money. They live in an environment much like an elementary school where the buzzers go off and they race from their office down to the floor of Congress to vote on issues they don't even know what they're voting on. They stand in an empty chamber giving speeches to nobody. 
It is a system that produces no progress. So the people inside that system, it seems to me, are the crazy ones. So if there's crazy here and I'm crazy for this march, then crazy knows crazy. If you think about every single important issue America has to address, if you're on the right and you care about tax reform or addressing the issues of the deficit, on the left if you care about climate change or real health care reform, whatever the issue is, if you look at the way our system functions right now, you have to see that there will be no sensible reform given the way we fund campaigns. Hiker Gabriel Grant. No one directly cares that much about campaign finance reform or the issue of money in politics because it's not an issue that directly affects us. It's an issue that affects us through every other issue we care about. Once again, Lawrence Lessig. Both sides of the political divide are embarrassed, I think, by the way in which the system functions, but they have no clear resolve or will to do anything about it. So the only way we can do something is to force them to take it seriously. So we're at the tip of New Hampshire. We're going to start at the place that the New Hampshire primary will happen, and we're about to begin a march, and the march will be two weeks from Dixville Notch to Nashua. New Hampshire is an incredibly sophisticated political state, mainly because presidential candidates basically live here for two years of the presidential election cycle as they try to convince New Hampshire to vote for them. Hiker Archon Thung. New Hampshire still is one of the few moments in the process of electing our president in which ordinary people sometimes can get to ask candidates real questions in an authentic and unscripted way. Lawrence Lessig. We want to create a movement of people who will make this the first issue by asking every single presidential candidate between now and January 2016 this one question, what will you do to end the system of corruption in Washington? We've been looking for a long time to the kind of action that people had to pay attention to, they had to look at, they had to see, they had to think about. You know, we're hopeful that if people see people trudging through the sleet and the rain and the snow in New Hampshire in January, they'll stop and say, why? Why would you do that? What's the purpose? What's the issue? And as they think about it, they'll be reminded that they too care about this issue. The latest poll we've done found 96% of Americans believe that the influence of money in our political system has got to be changed. There is no issue in American politics that has that unanimity of support. But at the same time, 91% of Americans believe this issue will never be solved. 91% believe there's no way to beat this issue because the issue is so tied up with power right now that it can't be reformed. Hiker Mary Redway. I'm 61 years old. It depresses me. It depresses me to think what I'm leaving my children. I'm past the point of anger. I think we all had a sense of futility until this march came through. And, and somehow for us, it seems to be a window of possibility. Fund for the Republic's Nick Pinneman. One of the great challenges for anyone who cares about campaign finance reform is to make it a kitchen table issue, is to link it directly to people's lives in a real way, to show them that the foreclosure crisis next door links back to money in politics and the power of the bank lobby, that the cost of prescription drugs links back to the pharmaceutical lobby. Mary Redway. In general, people support us whether they know it or not. 
the sense of frustration and dissatisfaction with the total dysfunction of the government. And I think everybody right on agrees, yes, money is one of the big problems. Activist Lawrence Lessig. The simplest thing that money buys you in Washington, and the thing that absolutely everybody admits it buys you, is access. So you're a congressperson, you've been on the road all day, maybe giving speeches, maybe meeting people, and you get home and there's a pile of messages of people you need to call. And among those people are the people who've given you $5,000 in your congressional campaign. Who are you gonna call first? So your priorities get bent in direction of the money. When you step back and you ask, where in the Constitution, in the design of our government, did anybody ever envision that money, independent of votes, was going to have this amount of control in our system? Hiker, Archon Fung. The word democracy means people rule. But in this system, it's at least the case that money rules as much as people rule. And if that's the case, it's not a democracy. Once again, Lawrence Lessig. Even though the framers were pretty bad about race, and they certainly didn't understand sex equality. The one thing the framers got was class. They understood the biggest risk was to create an aristocracy. And so they insisted, as Madison said, the people meant not the rich more than the poor. Well, we've completely betrayed that commitment. Gabriel Grant. And this issue fundamentally is about empowerment. It's about feeling like ideas can move forward based on their merits instead of based on who holds the most power. Lawrence Lessig. So the incentives inside the fundraising process no longer align with the incentives of an institution that was meant to represent the people as a whole. And the only way to fix that is to change the incentives. To make it so that instead of obsessively worrying about what the tiniest fraction of the 1% care about, they are worrying about what the vast majority of Americans care about. The solution is to change the way we fund elections by supporting small dollar funded elections so that instead of the 120th of 1%, they raise money from the vast majority of Americans to spread out the funder influence, just like we spread out the vote. That would change the way we fund elections and radically change the way Congress works. This is not a one-time struggle that we can solve and then just forget this last election cycle saw a lot of super PAC money, but it was kind of the dry run, just getting its legs. And what I fear is 2016 is going to be the year of the super PAC, where they are extremely effective in raising unbelievable amounts of money from a completely tiny, tiny, tiny set of Americans. Well, let's go! Yeah! You know, when we decided to do this, we first didn't expect there would be more than about five or ten at the most people who would be marching. But as we've gone through the town or we've been going down roads, the number of people who have reacted passionately and really vigorously to what we're doing as they see our signs or they've read about us or heard about us on television, people honking horns, putting signs in front of their house. Every day there's new people joining for the rest of the walk. Once again, Nick Pinneman. It is raw human suffering to walk from Dixville Notch, New Hampshire to Nashua in January. We've seen that over the course of the last two weeks. Sleet, snow, blizzards, sub-zero temperatures. The inevitable question, so what? Well, they got picked up by every single media outlet in the state, including every paper that counts. 
radio, TV, and they've also created a dialogue beyond that. I see a finish line. New Hampshire Rebellion's Lawrence Lessig. After this march, we're going to begin to organize meetups around the state where people get trained about how do you ask the question, what will you do to end the system of corruption in Washington? This is a much easier problem than some of the really hard problems that the 20th century struggled with and solved. You know, you think about racism or sexism or homophobia. Those are not problems which you can just solve overnight. You don't just wake up one day no longer a racist. It takes years, generations, to rip that pathology out of the DNA of a society. But this is a problem of just changing incentives. If we change the incentives for fundraising, Campaigns would change overnight. Put one foot in front of the other, stepping into the here and now. I'm not sure just where I'm going, but I will get there anyhow. So a chip, a poet, and a boy. It's just about 20 years ago, June 1994, when Intel announced that there was a flaw at the core of their Pentium chip. Deep in the code of the SRT algorithm to calculate intermediate quotients necessary for iterative floating point divisions, I don't know what that means, but it's what it says on Wikipedia, there was a flaw and an error that meant that there was a certain probability that the result of the calculation would be in error. And the probability was one out of every 360 billion calculations. So Intel said your average spreadsheet would be flawed once every 27,000 years. They didn't think it was significant, but there was an outrage in the community. The community, the techies, said this flaw has to be addressed. They were not going to stand by quietly as Intel gave them these chips. So there was a revolution across the world. People marched to demand. Okay, not, not really exactly like that. But they rose up and they demanded that Intel fix the flaw. And Intel set aside $475 million dollars to fund the replacement of millions of chips to fix the flaw. So billions of dollars in our society was spent to address a problem which would come once out of every 360 billion calculations. Number two, a poet. This is Martin Niemöller. You're familiar with his poetry around the height of the Nazi period. He started repeating the verse, first they came for the communists and I did nothing did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists. Then they came for the trade unionists. Then they came for the Jews. And then they came for me. But there was no one left to speak for me. Now, Niemöller is offering a certain kind of insight. This is an insight at the core of intelligence. We could call it cluefulness. It's a certain kind of test. 
Can you recognize an underlying threat and respond? Can you save yourself or save your kind? Turns out ants are pretty good at this, cows not so much. (laughs) So can you see the pattern? Can you see a pattern and then recognize and do something about it? Number two, number three, a boy. This is my friend Aaron Swartz. He's Tim's friend. He's friends of many of you in this audience. Ten years, seven years ago. Aaron came to me with a question. It was just before I was going to give my first TED Talk. I was so proud. I was telling him about my talk, Laws That Choke Creativity. And Aaron looked at me and was a little impatient. And he said, so how are you ever going to solve the problems you're talking about? Copyright policy, internet policy. How are you going to ever address those problems so long as there's this fundamental corruption in the way our government works. So I was a little put off by this. He wasn't sharing in my celebration. And I said to him, you know, Aaron, it's not my field. Not my field. He says, you mean as an academic, it's not your field? I said, yeah, as an academic, it's not my field. He said, what about as a citizen? As a citizen. Now, this is the way Aaron was. He didn't tell, he asked questions. But his questions spoke as clearly as my four-year-old's hug. He was saying to me, you've got to get a clue. You've got to get a clue because there is a flaw at the core of the operating system of this democracy. And it's not a flaw every one out of 360 billion times our democracy tries to make a decision. It is every time, every single important issue. We've got to end the bovinity of this political society. We've got to adopt, turns out the word is the form of formatic attitude. That's what the internet tells me the word is. The ant's appreciative attitude that gets us to recognize this flaw, save our kind and save our demos. Now, if you know Aaron Swartz, you know that we lost him just over a year ago. It was about six weeks before I gave my TED Talk, and I was so grateful to Chris that he asked me to give this TED Talk, not because I had the chance to talk to you, although that was great, but because it pulled me out of an extraordinary depression I couldn't begin to describe, the sadness. Because I had to focus, I had to focus on what was I going to say to you. It saved me. But after the buzz, the excitement, the power that comes from this community, I began to yearn for a less sterile, less academic way to address these issues, the issues that I was talking about. We'd begun to focus on New Hampshire as a target for this political movement because the primary in New Hampshire is so incredibly important. There's a group called the New Hampshire Rebellion that was beginning to talk about how would we make this issue of this corruption central in 2016. But it was another soul that caught my imagination, a woman named Doris Haddock, a.k.a. Granny D. On January 1st, 1999, 15 years ago, at the age of 88, Granny D started a walk. She started in Los Angeles and began to walk to Washington, D.C. with a single sign on her chest that said, Campaign Finance Reform. 18 months later, 
At the age of 90, she arrived in Washington with hundreds following her, including many congressmen who had gotten in a car and driven out about a mile outside of the city <laughs> to walk in with her. Now, I don't have 13 months uh, to walk across the country. I've got three kids who hate to walk um, and a wife who, it turns out, still hates when I'm not there for a mysterious reason. So this was not an option. But the question I ask, could we remix Granny D a bit? What about a walk not of 3,200 miles, but of 185 miles across New Hampshire in January? So on January 11th, the anniversary of Aaron's death, we began a walk that ended on January 24th, the day that Granny D was born. A total of 200 people joined us across this walk as we went from the very top to the very bottom of New Hampshire, talking about this issue. And what was astonishing to me, something I completely did not expect to find, was the passion and anger that there was among everyone that we talked to about this issue. We had found in a poll that 96% of Americans believe it important to reduce the influence of money in politics. Now, politicians and pundits tell you there's nothing we can do about this issue. Americans don't care about it. But the reason for that is that 91% of Americans think there's nothing that can be done about this issue. And it's this gap between 96 and 91 that explains our politics of resignation. I mean, after all, at least 96% of us wish we could fly like Superman, but because at least 91% of us believe we can't, we don't leap off of tall buildings every time we have that urge. That's because we accept our limits, and so too with this reform. But when you give people a sense of hope, you begin to thaw that absolute sense of impossibility. As Harvey Milk said, if you give them hope, you give them a chance, a way to think about how this change is possible. Hope. And hope is the one thing that we, Aaron's friends, failed him with because we let him lose that sense of hope. I, I, loved, I loved that boy. Like, I love my son. But we failed him. And I love my country. My country. And I'm not going to fail that. I'm not going to fail that. That sense of hope. We're going to hold and we're going to fight for however impossible this battle looks. What's next? Well, we started with this march with 200 people, and next year there will be a 1,000 on different routes that march in the month of January and meet in Concord to celebrate this cause. And then in 2016, before the primary, there will be 10,000 who march across that state meeting in Concord to celebrate this cause. And as we have marched, people around the country have begun to say, can we do the same thing in our state? So we've started a platform called GD Walkers, that is Granny D Walkers, and Granny D Walkers across the country will be marching for this reform, number one. Number two, on this march, one of the founders of Thunderclap, David Casino, was with us. And he said, well, what can we do? And so they developed a platform, which we are announcing today, 
that allows us to pull together voters who are committed to this idea of reform. Regardless of where you are in New Hampshire or outside of New Hampshire, you can sign up and directly be informed where the candidates you are are on this issue so you can decide who to vote for as a function of which is going to make this possibility real. And then finally, number three, the hardest here. We're in the age of the super PAC. Indeed, yesterday, Miriam announced that Miriam's Webster will have super PAC as a word. It is now an official word in the dictionary. So on May 1st, a.k.a. May Day, we're going to try an experiment. We're going to try a launching of what we could think of as a super PAC to end all super PACs. And the basic way this works is this. For the last year, we have been working with analysts and political experts to calculate how much would it cost to win enough votes in the United States Congress to make fundamental reform possible. What is that number? Half a billion? A billion? What is that number? And then whatever that number is, we are going to kickstart, sort of, because you can't use Kickstarter for political work, but anyway, kickstart, sort of, First, a bottom-up campaign where people will make small-dollar commitments contingent on reaching very ambitious goals. And when those goals have been reached, we will turn to the large-dollar contributors to get them to contribute to make it possible for us to run the kind of super PAC necessary to win this issue, to change the way money influences politics. So that on November 8th, which I discovered yesterday is the day that Aaron would have been 30 years old. On November 8th, we will celebrate 218 representatives in the House and 60 senators in the United States Senate who have committed to this idea of fundamental reform. So, last night we heard about wishes. Here's my wish. May 1. May the ideals of one boy unite one nation behind one critical idea that we are one people. We are the people who were promised a government, a government that was promised to be dependent upon the people alone, the people who, as Madison told us, meant not the rich more than the poor. May one. And then may you. May you join this movement, not because you're a politician, not because you're an expert, not because this is your field, but because if you are, you are a citizen. Aaron asked me that. Now I've asked you. So if there's something you'd like to try, if there's something you'd like to try, ask me, I won't say no, how could I? This is nice and kindness can stop you from saying all the things in life you'd like to. So if there's something you'd like to try, if there's something you'd like to try, ask me, I won't say no, how could I? Since the early 1920s, aviators and mariners have used the word mayday to signal distress and to call for aid. And on the sea, at least, when another captain hears that call, there's an obligation, a moral obligation, to lend aid.
We are calling a May Day on this democracy. Across this country, Americans on the left and the right have come to the view that our government is broken, and more than 90% of us link that failure to the role of money in politics. While infrastructure collapses, while our schools fail, while we have a healthcare system that costs too much and does too little, while climate change remains totally unaddressed, while our tax system remains a gift to those who can afford to lobby for loopholes, politicians from both parties still spend endless time raising money from the tiniest fraction of the 1%. And as a recent study from Princeton confirms, the result of this fundraising culture is a government that is responsive to that tiny fraction of the 1%, while, quote, average American citizens have little or no independent influence, end quote. We want to fight back. Our democracy is held hostage by the funders of campaigns. We're going to pay the ransom and get it back. We want to build a super PAC big enough to end all super PACs and over the course of the next two elections, use that super PAC to win enough seats to pass fundamental reform. Or at least we're going to try. With May1.us, we launch an experiment to see whether we, the people, can kickstart a super PAC big enough to mobilize the people to demand reform. We're going to do this in stages, with a series of targets which, as we meet them, will build confidence that this experiment has enough support of Americans to make it real and to make it work. Our goal for this election cycle is to raise enough money to change the results in five House districts across the country. Through that work, we'll learn what works, and we'll put the rest of Congress on notice that in 2016, we'll be back. Now, to do this, we're launching this experiment. We'll first kickstart $1 million dollars meaning we'll ask people to commit whatever they can afford, and only if we meet that goal will we collect their pledge. So if you pledge $100, we'll only collect that $100 if $1 million is pledged. Now, if we hit that first $1 million goal, then I'll get that amount matched, and we'll then kickstart a second target, this one with a $5 million goal. And if we hit that goal, then I'll get that matched as well, and we'll have enough money to make a difference in 2014 and to set us up for a much bigger campaign two years later. And here is my pledge. 100% of the money we kickstart here will be used to change Congress. No one will get any overhead or consultant salaries out of these funds, all of them will be used to convince Americans to help us win this democracy back. Now, we need your help to make this work. No one knows whether we can build such a movement from the citizens up. Certainly, I don't. But we need to try. We're not going to spend thousands to advertise what we're doing. We're going to count on you. We have pulled together this first site with the volunteer help of people who want to make America better. And throughout this campaign, we'll rely upon volunteers as much as we can. But when we raise the money we need to make an impact, we'll hire the best badass campaign shops we can find to make these contributions work. So yes, we want to spend big money to end the influence of big money. Ironic, I get it. 
but embrace the irony. Because with enough of us, we can easily build a super PAC bigger and more effective than the super PACs of the billionaires. So please help us. Pledge whatever you can now. We won't collect it unless we meet our goal. But more importantly, please spread this message. It will take thousands of Americans to even meet this first goal. But we will reach those thousands only if people like you take this first step to share what we're doing. If we're going to ransom back this democracy, you must answer this Mayday call. We've made promises to our children and promises to our parents, but we have a government that is more worried about promises to itself and its lobbyists to keep itself in power. We still have the power to change that, and we will if you help. calling from Delaware, and I was just listening to the climate change episode, the latest one, and you were talking about ethical electric, and you didn't mention that it's available in Delaware, because I've had it for about six months, and uh, you mentioned all the states around me, but not Delaware itself, so I just wanted to let you know that it is available in Delaware, and I don't remember exactly how I found out about it. I think they sent me a letter. And uh, as soon as they did, I signed up for it right away. It's a tiny bit more expensive, but it's totally worth it in my view. So just wanted to let you know about that. Thank you. Thanks for the show. Thanks for the update on that. My one complaint about Ethical Electric is they don't appear to have a comprehensive list on their website of all of the states in which they are available. And so apparently Delaware was not on the list that I did come across. So, you know, that's good to know. And just a quick reminder, if you're interested in buying green energy for your home or office or whatever, you can do that at ethicalelectric.com slash best. That gets a little bit of a kickback to me for sending you there. If you are not sure if you're in their coverage area, you can still just go to their homepage, put in your address, and it's pretty easy to find out. Hey, Jay, this is Melissa from New York. I'm calling in on the recent discussion about um, polyamory. Um, specifically, I wanted to get my reaction to the discussion that you just had at the end. The two guys who were fabling, they are mostly calling it polygamy, and you were better about calling it polyamory, but I just want to um, take a second to talk about the word choice here, because... Polygamy is the kind of ugly thing practiced by the Mormon church. Yada yada, we have one guy, marries a bunch of women, a lot of them tend to be younger, um, and it's just kind of gross. Whereas polyamory is a highly different thing. It is, as you were saying, it's just one person in multiple different relationships. I happen to be in two relationships um, right now, and one of my partners is also in a relationship with other people besides me. Um, so the logistics of it are complicated, but they're not, like there are regular marriages whose logistics are also complicated. So that's not really a terribly good argument against it. Um, anyway, I feel like you covered most of it, but I feel like that it should be acknowledged that polyamory, as it is talked about now, is often done among queer people. It's often done among people like me who are within relationship of people, you know, um, people of different genders, multiple genders. I happen to be bisexual. Both my partners also happen to be female. But to 
try to to try to pigeonhole the kind of queer polyamory that is right now uh, existing and try to make it fit with the uh, earlier patriarchal uh, version of Mormonism, is, that really does not jive very well with me. So I just really want to stress those two points. Make sure that we're talking about uh, polyamory and not polygamy. Please don't use that latter word. Okay, thanks, Jay. Hey, Jay, this is Sonia from Minnesota, and I just wish to make a very brief, clear statement in regards to the argument that if it's a choice, then we're not really obligated to honor people's rights or however you wish to put it. Hey, Jay, this is Raul calling from Hawaii. If you're homosexual, then that means you're different. You have a different sexuality than other people. If you want to have more than one spouse, like you're a man and you want to have two wives, you're not a different sexuality from other men. You just want to have more of the same thing. It's not like you're a different class that's being discriminated against. It's just the action that you're taking is illegal, not that you're a class of person that's specifically not being allowed to do this thing. You know what else is a choice? Religion. That's all. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Amanda from San Diego. I wanted to call in to continue that conversation about polyamory. I think that this discussion is interesting because it seems like most people who are well, perfectly comfortable with changing the definition of marriage in terms of gender are very uncomfortable with the idea of polygamy being legal. And I think that's because it's a very emotional issue, especially for those of us who really can see it. Uh, we get emotional because most of the cases you hear about are, well, horrible. You hear about communes and religious extremists like Warren Jeffs, who is now in jail for abusing young girls. You hear about the abuses that seem to be, well, almost synonymous with the word polygamy. These stories are disturbing, and I don't think anyone's in favor of encouraging this behavior or legalizing it. But for the purposes of this discussion, I think we need to separate ourselves from that. Child abuse and forcing a marriage on someone are already illegal. This used to even be a problem with monogamous marriage. There was a time in human history when it was perfectly acceptable to force a woman to marry as directed, even at very young ages. That's something that we had to change to make monogamous marriage acceptable. And it's still something that would have to be changed in much of the American polygamous world. I truly believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. If polygamy is legalized, it might put some of these societies out into the light. This might mean that the secretive polygamous culture already in existence in our country would feel free and able to interact more with the outside world. And once they're getting legal marriage licenses, we may be better able to regulate their behaviors to stop them from forcing marriages on young girls under the age of 18. To make them follow basically the guidelines that we already have set up for marriage, such as the age restrictions. Now, to truly legalize this fairly, you'd have to legalize the traditional polygamy of one man and multiple women, but also one woman and multiple men, same-sex groups, and mixed-sex groups of any variety. While I'm not personally interested in such a relationship, I would have no moral objection to groups of consenting adults living in this fashion. And I agree with you that the arguments against polyamory are eerily similar to the arguments against same-sex marriage. Legally speaking, it would be messy and our current laws regarding marriage would have to be reworked. It would not be as simple as same-sex marriage would be, as far as legal rights go. But just because it would be messy doesn't mean it's a horrible idea. The emotional response we have to legalizing polygamy is based on a history, and in all honesty, a present of abuse. However, I think that bringing these communities into the light, allowing them to be more part of our outside world, might actually help curtail some of these abuses. 
We can't, on the one hand, denounce people against gay marriage for supposed moral reasons or values, and at the same time turn around and do the same for polygamists. While it is difficult, I think it's important to separate polygamy as a subject and all the abuses, abuses that we associate with it. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Thanks for the discussion, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Lubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And although we did not have an official activism segment today, you know, I thought the call to action came through pretty clearly on its own just in the segment. Um, I just want to clarify that the May 1 campaign that we heard about at the end of the show is happening right now. It is active as we speak. It launched uh, May 1st. They're looking to raise a million dollars by the end of the month, and they are 78% of the way there after just 10 days of the campaign. So if you want to join in, now is the time. Uh, e- we're going to easily get over that million dollar mark, but you know, only if people actually go to the website and make it happen. So uh, may1.us is the website, and that is all spelled out, not using any numerals, M-A-Y-O-N-E dot U-S. And secondly today, I've got, I've got a couple of things to talk about. One, uh, I'm going to tell you something, and then the other, I'm going to ask you something. First of all, I want to tell you about uh, Sean James, because, uh, you know, some of you will remember a few weeks ago, I had a, like, s- sort of near-catastrophic technical problem that... Um, you know, put me out of commission for a day. An episode of the show was late. It really irritated me. And I thought, okay, this problem I've been having, I, I'm pushed to my limits. I, I had already gone to the, you know, the Apple store at the Genius Bar. They were baffled by my problem. I thought, okay, I'm going to take my friend Jimmy Dore's advice and, and look up Sean James. If you ever heard uh, Jimmy Dore's show, he talks about Sean James in every episode because you know, Sean's there. He helps me fix my computer. You know, anytime it's broken, I think like, man, Jimmy must be producing his show on like the most beat up, held together with scotch tape with a constant little, little trickle of smoke coming out of his computer at all times, uh, sort of Mac. Uh, because he, he obviously needs so much help from Sean fixing it. But, uh, but I thought, look, you know, what do I have to lose? I'll get in touch with Sean. Turns out he's not only a supporter and listener of Jimmy's, but he's also a listener of Best of the Left. And so, you know, if you have problems of your own with your, uh, Mac computer, uh, definitely check him out because as it turns out, I had one little problem and one major problem and Sean fixed my little problem so easily. It was like, it was nothing to him. He was just a, a throwaway. Like, oh, hey, you just do this and that'll fix that. No problem. And it turns out, you know, fingers crossed, we're not a hundred percent sure yet, but it looks like the little problem being fixed might've fixed the bigger problem because the bigger problem that was coming up every few days has been gone now for a few weeks. So that's pretty exciting. So I'm, I'm good to go and, and happily will spread the word about uh, the benefits of checking out seanjames.com for your Mac help needs. His first name is spelled S-H-A-U-N and then james.com. Secondly today though, uh, what I have to ask you about is the perpetual problem that uh, people like me and all of my sort of virtual colleagues, you know, the the David Pacmans and the Sam Cedars and the Young Turks and the uh, Jimmy Doors and so on. The problem that we all share is that none of us have enough uh, audience members. We just don't. Like, however big you think shows like this are, 
there's a really decent chance you're overestimating it. And, you know, so that causes problems in a variety of ways, Uh, you know, just in terms of sustainability. Sometimes, you know, some shows can sustain themselves. Others can't. So if we could get more up into that sustainable uh, level, then that would be nice. And also just political impact and, you know, all the benefits that come with with more people sort of being aware of this stuff and spreading the word and changing minds. That's what it's all about. And and unfortunately, we just have not found the the magic recipe for sort of marketing yet. And so I'm curious the, of, of any thoughts you guys have on it, basically. So general thoughts on marketing, general, uh, you know, or specific experiences that you've had, like the, the best uh, marketing there is, is word of mouth marketing, right? You know, you love this show and you personally tell people that you know about, hey, you should really check this out. I enjoy this show. I think you'll enjoy it. And then you hope that they will go do that. And so if there's anything that, uh, you know, that a, a producer like myself could do to sort of support those efforts to make it easier for you to spread the word if you are so inclined uh, to do so, I, I would love to know what I could do to help you if I provided, you know, downloadable posters for you to put up or flyers to hand out or little business cards that you could print out and put in your wallet and carry with you at all times so that when you tell someone about the show, you could actually hand them a slip of paper so that they don't forget about it later. They actually find the piece of paper in their pocket and then, you know, go download the show on their own time. Or, uh, you know, I, I've been working on uh, or I've been at least thinking, <laughs> I haven't started working yet, but I've been thinking about getting, you know, an app for the show that's not, uh, that doesn't cost any money so that when you tell someone about it, you could say, oh, you just download their free app to check it out, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, I would love any thoughts, seriously, any, any thoughts you have because, um, you know, people like me and, and, you know, all of my, uh, friends and colleagues, we don't have this figured out yet. Like, we have audiences, sort of, um, but in in terms of any sort of long term strategy, like we need to do better. That's what we need. Um, whether we have a goal or not, you know, onwards and upwards should always be the direction. And and frankly, that's that's not always the case. Sometimes it's a uh, you know flat and steady for a long time when um, you know when we should be striving for more. So it's a tough problem. No one's come up with a brilliant solution yet, but if you want to, uh, you know, chime in, it would be greatly appreciated. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past.